You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Deeper Magic Podcast. I am Peter Kapsner, and I am unfortunately here without my normal partner in crime, my daughter Anna Kapsner, who has a, a special Friendsgiving celebration. This is it's it's a little after Thanksgiving, but yet she's having a Friendsgiving celebration at the coffee shop in which she works. So she was unavailable at the time of recording when our guest, who was available, and he's a very busy, important man, very difficult to book. <laughs> and so at this point. We wanted to do this podcast for sure. We're going to talk yes. a little bit today about sexuality in the church. And the guest that I'm going to welcome in in just a second was my partner in crime talking about sexuality for four weeks in the church. And we're just going to reflect a little bit on how that went and just yeah. some of where we are, the temperature of the conversation. So, Pastor, I'm going to call you Pastor. That's very kind of you. Is that because you do have an MDiv Correct. from Denver Seminary? Yes. And uh, and that is an actual like accredited seminary, right? It, it, wasn't it is. <laughs> So, and I haven't even given you your name yet, but it's, it's no. I've known you for how long? And here's the thing. You have a confusing, I don't know if it's a French last name, nope. Luke, I, or what is the origin of your four letter last name that is impossible for me to remember how to pronounce despite several years of knowing you? Yeah. Um, so it's Norwegian. It's Norwegian. It's really? Norwegian. Okay. Correct. V-E-U-M, right? Yes. How do I say that? V-M. It is VM. So I'm always confused as to whether it's vowel. one syllable or two. Yes. And two it's not, it's, it, it's not VM or is it VM? Like VM. VM. Like Luke VM. VM. What do you do for church, Luke? I know it's a recent hire for you. I know this is a job that you just recently taken. Yes. Um, so I am the group's director at Westgate Church. Um, and this is my second position at the church. It is. I was originally brought on in the midst of COVID to be the production manager and to kind of sort out our live stream program. And groups meaning what? Because we're, we're talking about a season in church life often, and, and I know you listen sometimes to Deeper Magic, and one mm -hmm. of the things that comes up is sort of this move away from big event Sunday morning yes. church styles. And I know that you're on board with sort of the evolution that's happening in the church. Mm -hmm. more Or the devolution. Groups. Yeah, or the devolution, exactly. So your heart for groups and churches, yep. what? S small groups. So... I am tasked with kind of training, recruiting, training new small group leaders and helping people get connected in the church. So both in that kind of small group setting and then certain different studies um, where I help where it's like a set amount of time, including the learning circle which yeah. is one of the names we give for our adult classes that we did together. Indeed. And you are how old? You're like 20, you're like maybe 22, 23. What are That's you exactly? That's so kind. That's so kind. What are you? You're, I mean, I, you're on the young side of this whole thing. I'm 32. 32. 32. 32. Okay. And what would you say a 53-year-old like me needs to learn from a 32-year-old like you in light of church and groups and all that? Truly, because it's things are so different these days and, and I'm on the way That's out true. and you're on the way up and in. I'm just so curious. I mean, there's so much that... I don't even know still um, and trying to figure out. And I mean, the whole shift, um, uh, speaking from my own personal experience, being in my early 30s, newly married and a new father. I know because like, Fitz is how old? Your son Fitz is how old? Fitz is now four months old. I can't believe he's four, he's months, four months old. And it was brilliant. Like when you came in, the fact that he responds to what his he's got a new favorite song. Well, he's got a favorite song. It's, yep. it's, everything's new to him. Everything so is new. new. So he has a favorite song. Favorite song. When the Saints Go Marching In. Amazing. Yeah. Which I, I hope is telling for what his future holds for him. But <laughs> every time you start singing it, he lights up and big smile. And yeah, it's such so much fun. So I want to go back to the question about what you see in the church. But as a new dad, yeah. and you think about what you just said, what you hope for for Fitz, what would be your maybe greatest fear? In I mean, it, it, there's yeah. fear and joy mixed when you yes. first become a parent, right? And yeah. there's so much obvious joy in having fits. But when you think about him and the shape of the world and the church and all of that, Which, like, and what, even what in myself, say? like, yeah, yeah. um, being like, I grew up in the church and had a, oh, hello. We're just going to have to pause for just a second. Cause we thought she was going to be gone and she suddenly Harry Potter style apparated into the studio here. I thought you were out because you were a charcuterie train. Yeah, uh, related to friends. Charcuterie, right? I think it's the verb. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Did I ever tell you that I snuck a charcuterie board into a movie theater 
with one of my friends at one point. Like a full board? Yeah. I mean, I have snuck uh, like a vitamin water and possibly a Mm -hmm. a hip flask at one point that had had a a, a little bit of whiskey in it. But you snuck an entire charcuterie. We've got to get back to your I don't even know if that's sneaking in. I feel like everyone probably saw you. No, they didn't because we had the board and then we put a bowl over the top and then we put a blanket over the whole thing. So it looked like I was just carrying a blanket. (laughs) If I ever need to get across a border, I want you with me. We got into the movie theater and our friend who was meeting us there sat down next to us and I like took the blanket off the board and he just looked at me and was like, I don't even want to know. <laughs> it's amazing. So I have two questions on the table right now for Luke. I haven't let him I feel like either, you're either just one of them piling just the yet. questions on. So the, the okay. two questions, number one. I have five minutes maximum here. Okay, yeah. so we'll, we'll do, do this quick. So, yes. the, so the, the two questions that we have for you is your greatest fear in terms of being a new oh, father. Yes. And also oh, what a 53-year-old like me should learn from you as a 32-year-old pastor Ugh. in the constant evolution of the church. Yeah. So uh, Anna has, she's been, she's been clear. Mm-hmm. She has to leave in five minutes. So you have oh. like two minutes. I have two have minutes to answer. So then, yes. I also thought that you were pitching these questions to both of us. And I was like, I do have many fears as a new father. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, our conversations about sexuality today. So that's oh, okay. well, there, there you go. go. Okay. So have at it. Um, for me, being a father is that combination of fear and excitement. And it's just one of those. I always go back to the stories I grew up with. And one of the main characters is Spider-Man. Okay. Um, My favorite superhero. Spider-Man. Yes. The idea of with great power comes great responsibility. In this stage of my life, I'm seeing with great responsibility also comes great power. Mm. Like I have so much power in Fitz's life and I want to wield that for good and not for destruction. Love that. But also recognize that he's going to get a mixed bag from me. Mm. And then to be quick to repent to him and apologize and hope that he extends me the grace that I would also want to extend to him. Yeah, I would say, Anna, that I probably, I wish I would have learned a little sooner to say what Luke was saying so well right there, is is I, I want to say that later on in our relationship, I became somebody who was very quick to repent or see that I was wrong on some things. And, and I just think as a, having a parent that is willing to walk in those paths is, I think, just so attractive for kids to grow up in that kind of environment. Yeah, absolutely. And even in like the last couple of years, I feel like, our relationship has really strengthened and deepened as we have had more of those conversations. And it's not even like a one and done thing where we sat down one time and we're like, here's the childhood stuff that was kind of a bummer and like talked about that. It's not like that was one conversation. That was something that like over a, over years now we've been like, okay, and this thing is coming up again for both of us. How do we deal with that? How do we move forward from that and how do we rework these patterns? Yeah. So well said. Well, all right, Luke. So second question on the table for you, you are coming into sort of vocational ministry, a very different atmosphere situation Mm -hmm. than I would have probably come into this at the same age in the early two thousands. And we're talking about the decline of the institutional church in some ways. We're Mm -hmm. talking about a very different society. A lot of people are suggesting that we're heading the way of Europe, which is a very secularized society. I I think that's a little premature because there's still bazillions of dollars being spent in the industry that is Christendom and everything. There's still a way to make a lot of money in Christendom. Oh, yeah. I know know that's why you're on this podcast is you want to be a proper young pastor who's leveraging the kingdom for personal gain. That was exactly what you said. I was going to say, if you're hoping that we're going to pay you, we are broke. (laughs) He is trying to develop his brand right now, Anna, as as an emerging young pastor. Yeah. Have you updated your LinkedIn? Because all of my professors are talking about how I have to update my LinkedIn before I graduate. Yeah. I, I just, I'm off of all social media. You, well done. Yeah. That's awesome. Well yeah. done. Yeah. And so, and I mean, like, that's not to like toot my own horn, but it was just destructive for my life. And mm-hmm. yeah. if something's causing a sin, you just cut it off. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So bes- besides leveraging the kingdom for personal gain, which I know is clear, it, it, which animates you daily, yeah. what things would you want to to teach somebody like me, an old dog? Man, I just feel like I also have so much to learn from you. Oh, so like well, that's, that's, yeah. Well, thank you. Hard to. It's hard to admit. But the, <laughs> that's not what I was going to say, but the shoe on the other foot. Yeah. All right. Um, but just, I mean, we're just so hungry for something new and different and not to do church the way our parents did, mm-hmm. but also not to eject all of the good that like we were brought up in. Sounds Which like is a, so hard. yeah, but that sounds like a fairly nuanced way to think about things that I think is not easy to do because I think when people have been hurt or wounded in certain situations, yes. the understandable impulse is just to chuck it all out as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to understand, hey, you know, maybe God did redemptively move in some of the ways, yeah. however imperfect the wineskin was. Yes. And I will say 
like I grew up in the evangelical sphere. Mm-hmm. I have no evangelical church baggage. Yeah. Like, which I think is super rare for like a lot of the people I rub shoulders with. Like, I just have no gripes about how I was brought up in the church. Fascinating. Which is rare. Yeah. I also just have a thought as well about that when you're talking about how people are kind of hungry for something new and different and wanting to do church differently without mm-hmm. throwing away the positive things of it. It's really interesting because especially in my generation, I'm seeing a shift, a similar shift in attitude towards parenting hmm. where it's like, we want to keep the things that our parents did well, but do something new and different. Yes. And it's because even in what you were saying about how you want to be quick to repent and you want to be careful about how you are being a father. Yep. Um, it's interesting because something I'm hearing a lot of in, in my generation and in your generation is kind of this new attitude towards parenting where it yeah. very much isn't this like suck it up and deal with it kind mm-hmm. of kind of parenting method. It's like, yeah. no, how do we do this together? How do we do this together? And I, I will also say my dad's dream always for me was that I'd be a better parent than mm-hmm. his father was for him. Love that. Absolutely. And so like- in my mind, it's like, oh, I'm not trying to do something necessarily new. I'm trying to build off of the foundation that my dad built for me. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the church right now. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that seems to be part of the ongoing evolution of the church that I have witnessed is a little bit more openness to talk about matters of sexuality. That was something yeah. that was mm-hmm. completely forbidden, verboten, whatever you want to say when I was growing up, except around, of course, youth group week. And in high school, you'd bring in some sort of sexpert speaker. Well, that's to, to the, sort the shoes the you get to fill. Well, Isn't it, that fun? Yeah, <laughs> it was. Well, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm encouraged by it. And yet it's such a topic that is fraught with peril mm-hmm. that I think to try to do this well and to try to do this in a way that is as graceful as it needs to be and as truthful as it needs to be, I think is an incredibly difficult thing to walk because we're living in a time, I think, where people have felt so condemned related to their sexual choices, broken, like whatever you want to call it. And so I, I just think you have to have such a clear eyed view of the redemptive God of love mm-hmm. who is for all of us, mm-hmm. if we're going to even open the conversation and you, I mean, you took a risk when in your learning circles, yeah. you invited me to come and talk about this for four weeks. I felt oh, like I kind I of felt like you invited yourself well, <laughs> into it. So he does that. Yeah. Um, also briefly before you transition into, cause I know you need to go, I was going to ask you one more unfortunately question at time. Yeah. But okay. If you have a brief question, I can do that really fast. And then well, I that's what I was going to, uh, if you, this is my question for you, um, as, cause you're 21 mm-hmm. and if you were to say the, the topic of sexuality to open it up well in the church, would you say Anna, like the context where it's opened up matters a Sunday morning, more of a smaller situation, smaller environment. And that would be one question. And then maybe part B of that question is what are some of the more important things that need to get covered today? That's a super easy question to answer in 30 (laughs) seconds or less. Um, Wow. Okay. Uh, I would say, yes, it does matter where the topic is open and and how it's opened. Um, I, I will say growing up as a young woman in the church, um, most of what I was taught about sexuality was don't and your body is bad because you are a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is most of what I was taught. Um, and that if something happens or if somebody finds me desirable in any way, that that is my fault and that is a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say conversations of sexuality are really difficult to open in the church, especially for women, I think because there can be a lot of baggage about that, there mm-hmm. isn't necessarily. And I have friends who have spent their whole lives in the church and have never heard any messaging like that, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but I would say it's important to open the conversation. Yes, to the congregation as a whole. I think there needs to be. Well, I don't even want to say that I think there needs to be more work done with women than there needs to be with men, but I think there needs to be really different kinds of work that is happening where I think with women, there needs to be a lot less shame associated with conversations of sexuality. And because I'm not a guy who's grown up in the church, I don't know what that would look like for men on the other side of that. Um, But I think it would probably have to involve some sort of congregational conversations and then some kind of like smaller specific conversations even within age ranges even mm-hmm. within whatever and then part two of that question was what topics? well you kind of yeah i mean you kind of answered it yeah. in some ways right there it yeah. was really good for the context but even some of what we might cover anything else that you would add to that i mean i think especially now more and more conversations of sexuality are really really complicated in a lot of ways 
Um, and, and really genuinely not necessarily good or bad either way, but there's just so much information and it is so hard to filter out what is reliable and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And and like, I find that with any topic nowadays, like there, there is so much information and it's so hard to tell what's reliable and what isn't. But I find that even more so with conversations of sexuality. And then it's really complicated because there is so much hurt that has mm-hmm. come out of all I of that, that in yeah. every area. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and insightful. so it's really delicate conversations to try to be having with somebody to the point where it's even hard to ask what information is reliable and what isn't without hurting somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I, I almost would say we have to talk about all of it, which I know isn't mm-hmm. necessarily helpful <laughs> um, because there is so much that it's hard to know where to start. But yeah. I would, I would say it's essential to talk about, all of it because I think a lot of where the hurt has come from is an unwillingness to talk about it or a willingness to only talk about it from one side or from one idea or only presented in a certain way and not hear from a multitude of voices. Well, I'm going to let you run on that one. Um, I, I, and I'm going to follow up with Luke just about that piece of it, but I think what you just identified as the sheer volume of information available to us today that just simply Mm -hmm. wasn't there 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, number one. And then number two, how do you, define what is, or how do you know what is reliable and credible within that volume of information? It's a, and then the third part that you added in there is that then we're also probably living in some kind of hurt or fracture or turmoil. So the combination of those things make it a really uniquely complex and difficult subject. Yeah. And the last piece of that as well is that even in some of my classes, when we've talked about ethics or theology or whatever, I've had assignments where we've had to argue for an idea and against an idea. Um, and that I think was something that I've also found really helpful just in the idea of hearing from a multitude of voices is that the idea of being able to hear, to, to be able to think about an argument from one perspective and an argument from another perspective. And like, even in my own life, in some of the circles that I have run in the ideas or the ways of talking or thinking about sexuality that I have been exposed to have really helped me define what I believe about sexuality and what I think about myself in Mm -hmm. relationship to other people as well. And so that has been, I think there's a lot of fear in the church that if we talk about these things and if we talk about all of these things, that it's just going to make people more confused or that it's going to lead people down wrong paths or something. And my thing is that actually the more that I have learned about this, the more helpful it has been in defining my own journey, even though the initial amount of information has been really overwhelming. Yep. No, I love it. I yeah. love yeah. it. Well, okay, but I do have to. Yeah, since yep. you just apparated in, we clearly have to put some Dumbledore-like spells around the studio here because you're not supposed to apparate in and out of Hogwarts. And if yep. you can manage to get a charcuterie tray in here for us at some oh, point, that'd be we'd, wonderful. we'd very much appreciate that. Absolutely not. Okay. okay. <laughs> have a great time. Luke, really insightful, actually, I think, in in some of what she said there. I think actually represented a bit of you and I having some preliminary and initial conversations about this is just what do you cover within the complexity of this? Because the when I volunteered myself and forced myself into the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's accurate. We basically said we only have about four weeks to do this at an hour and a half at a whack. And I think both you and I were left a little puzzled what with what can with? we do yep. if we're going to open up Pandora's box on this subject within the context of a congregation, how do you do, do you it do and it? how do you do it well? So, and I will say that the number one piece of feedback I got back from our post class survey was that the session should have been longer and there should have been more of them. Fascinating. So yep. I, and this is the first that I've heard of any of the feedback. So yep. did you intentionally, find, <laughs> did you find why is it, is it because you just didn't want to hurt my feelings or what? It was too positive. That was too positive. <laughs> So, and I mean, you sat and we were together and all of it. And I realized even kind of going through it, how important it would have been to have another voice speaking into it. I think especially a female voice would have been Mm -hmm. helpful to teach in that context too. But what, what I, uh, what I said at the beginning of it was that I think in four weeks we can help unparalyze this and and take some of the fear out of it. I think it would take a year to feel like we have enough reliable information on all of the different subjects within sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about a generation then for the church to start walking in holiness and healthiness and redemption and repentance to and see all the of change, that, to actually have it reflective in our lives. Yeah. It was sort of like, you got to break the paralysis, but then you need just to understand the landscape of the whole thing, which takes yeah. a lot longer yep. than just some sermons on a weekend. And then you need a generation to really walk this stuff yep. out. And that's, that really stood out to me because it, came to me that it's not even going to be probably my generation 
the millennials or whatever you want to call us that will actually live out the change. It'll be the generation or two after us mm. that we actually see um, if we continue this hard work to see the fruit come out of it. Yeah. Do you see a context that that can continue to take shape just within the institutional church? I don't mean the church that you're a part of and, mm -hmm. and, and that I'm helping do some teaching in these yeah. days too called Westgate Church, which I just think it's on the front end of some really beautiful stuff yes. that's going on in helping reshape why we gather as the church. But do you see that there can start being the kind of wineskin? And I'm not saying for me, I'm just saying generally speaking to have these conversations. I mean, I, I hope there is space yeah. for it because these conversations need to happen. And I think for, for myself, both kind of being in between the worlds of both being in the church, um, practical ministry and um, doing in academia and the study that I love to do of like, how do those two meet? And that's really what I felt probably most encouraged about the class of like where I felt like you decided to start off. What was the basis was the theology around the image of God in all humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if we're going to talk about sexuality, well, then we need to talk about humanity. Um, and you can't like, it's just so foundational that we talk about that. And so what spaces can we actually deep dive into the theology that actually affects our everyday life? Yeah. I, Having taught this subject for the better part of 17-ish years now, I want to say 16, 17 years in, in university setting. And I know you even have some questions about that just to compare and contrast the settings. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, I certainly have made enough, my share of mistakes about how to even step into this topic that yeah. I wouldn't have even at all thought of. And one of the mistakes that I made very early on was just starting right away with some of the sexual brokenness that people mm -hmm. might be experiencing, mm -hmm. whether it is the pain of divorce or whether it's pornographic addiction. Yep. Um, at the time when I started, we didn't have anywhere near, if any of the gender blurring that's all happening right now. So that wasn't necessarily a thing, but there was still a ton of sexual brokenness. And I think yes. I underestimated that in any given classroom of say 30 ish evangelical students, mm -hmm. that 30 of them are going to be carrying some sort, some of, sort of brokenness. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of pain. And so I just sort of started in with the idea that, hey, well, let's just start going after this. But I would watch all the eyes in the room drop one after another because I was kind of reading their mail about probably what was going on. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I didn't appreciate, Luke, was, or didn't understand, I would say, um, and appreciate this was the case, is that I think their view of God and one another was so messed up yes. that there was such fear to even talk about any of it all. They were so afraid of God. They were mm -hmm. so afraid of other people. And so to your point of what you said is that I think – the theological move that's been really helpful as a starting point is to recognize that independent of whatever sexual expression that we see, our battle is always for flesh and blood. We're not battling one another in all of yes. this. And there's a lot of confusing topics and, mm -hmm. and I know where I am on a lot of these different um, sexuality kinds of topics. And I know why, and I think they're fairly well researched to yeah. come to these places. But even if I might suggest that there's versions of sexuality that are inconsistent with kingdom life, mm -hmm. um, which all of these categories of brokenness are, yeah. it has to start with the idea that we're actually for the redemption of one another, that we have to have a posture of forwardness independent of disagreements. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I, I think the the idea that there is actually no condemnation yeah. is the bedrock that we always need to start with in talking about this, because there's so much brokenness. There's so many ways that both the enemy and ourselves would love to condemn ourselves that we, we don't really have legs to stand on in this topic. And that's why it's so necessary to tell that message of grace and that God is working to redeem a people out of that brokenness and into wholeness. Yeah. And, and then that first night I sort of half anticipated. Now I was a little, I didn't know who was going to be in the room. You said there was going to be 50 ish or so people yeah. in the room and the demographic was uh, very much skewed towards 40 being on the younger side. There were yep. some younger people even than mm -hmm. that, but I would say 40 up to about 80 ish, yep. would you say yep. we're in the room? And, and I going into it, thankfully I anticipated that a little bit. And I started thinking about, so when we consider the last 60 years of sexual expression, yeah. most of the questions in the room are probably going to relate to the last three or four years mm -hmm. of sexual conversations that have emerged that specifically relate to same gender relationships, sexual blurring, all of that, that was mm -hmm. going to be the location of most of the questions. And I kind of knew, I didn't know, but I had an instinct that would suggest it might be helpful instead of focusing all the heat on that conversation to just do a survey of what the last 60 years look like. Yeah. To me, when I first was kind of considering all of these different decades in which we live of like the the free sex decade of the 1960s to the divorce decade of the 70s to the premarital sexuality of the 80s and 90s and sexually transmitted diseases to the 
rampant rise of pornography and phones in the 2000s. Like it set the context that we're all in this big mess yep. together, even though our, our questions are so understandable for today. We have 60 years of questions we haven't really ever dealt with. Yeah. And not to mention all the TV shows, movies mm. that have told a better story than the, the church tells. And, and that's been one of my questions that I wrote down as you were giving your teaching of like, how can the church get better at telling our story? Because I feel like that's the first battle that as a church, we kind of seem to be losing. So say more about that. What In terms of when you're saying maybe media or TV shows, like they've told a better story. Yeah, say more about what you mean. Yeah. I mean, you brought up uh, the TV show Friends. Yeah. Which like in the, the 90s became one of the best TV shows ever produced up to that time. And the promiscuity and everything would have been unheard of a decade or so before but they told such a good story with those characters that you felt for them. You fell in love with them. You did. And then you justified their behavior. That's a hundred percent. Like I, I, I mean, I'm not, were you even alive when the first episode of friends came out? Let's see. 20, it was 2023 right now. You're 32, nine to them. I'm 91 baby. You're a nine. And that first episode came out in like 95. Yep. I so I only say. saw reruns. Okay. So, but I was actually sitting at uh, my television with Hallie, my wife, mm -hmm. and it was must-see TV Thursday nights. And this is before there was all the cable cutting and everything. And, and there was no TiVo or, or DVR. Or so you had to watch streaming. it. You had to be present for it. And so Thursday night was must-see TV. And it started, I think, at that time with Mad About You at 7 o'clock. Okay. And then there was a throwaway show always at 7.30 to lead into Seinfeld, I think, at 8 o'clock. And then ER at 9 o'clock. So 7.30 and 8.30 were these throwaway shows. And the and so I went and got popcorn after yep. uh, Mad About You and and Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser the show that we just loved of this I don't couple. even know if I've saw I, the reruns I, I, of that sure, one. I'm sure you <laughs> and so I, I'm pretty sure I went to get popcorn or some sort of snack in between mm -hmm. and I sat down and the opening scene of this throwaway pilot episode mm -hmm. started and there was this young woman who ran into a coffee shop in the middle of New York City Central in a wedding Park, dress in a wedding dress yeah. at Rachel uh, it was Rachel yes. yeah Rachel ran in and she had just left the altar. And that show got done, Luke. And even the very first episode was um, just so out of bounds compared mm -hmm. to the sexual conversation of the day. And it was simultaneously so funny. And I remember after watching a couple episodes of it, Hallie and I kept looking at each other saying, what do we do with this? This is so funny and already so endearing. And yet it is so out of bounds when it comes to some of the sexual conversations. And I, I'm not going to say that I had my sexual ethics changed. They didn't mm -hmm. like we, we could recognize that it wasn't a great idea for Monica and Chandler to watch porn, to enhance their married mm -hmm. sexual relationship. And, mm -hmm. and yet they, they were so endearing that I can see why I would have my sexual ethic changed to become in alignment with that, which I was watching. And this is what you mean by telling yeah. a better story, telling a better story. And like, as Christians, we truly believe we have the best story to tell but I think when we have truncated the gospel or our services together to just be a 30 minute self-help talk, like we don't have, like there isn't the power behind it to really capture our imagination and change our lives. Mm. So would you say that it's, it's true. It's not that we haven't been taught about sex overall. It's just that the, the teachers have been so poor over these times. I mean, I, I mean, we've maybe a taught, little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> but not even just in the church necessarily, but you think of, I yeah. mean, what pornography teaches about sex oh. or like you said, media, all of these yep. things, it, they do teach us. They teach we, us. We they do disciple learn. us. They try to shape us to fit a certain idea of what a human should look like. Indeed. Uh, and then, and before we get into some of the specific questions of our four mm -hmm. times together and what we sort of learned from that, and that's part yeah. of where we want to spend the last half of this episode, what, what would you say about your experience growing up in the church with how and where sex was talked about and was it helpful? And, I, and I've asked so many of my yeah. evangelical kids this, and most of the time they say we didn't really talk about it very much, mm -hmm. but did you have a similar kind of experience? A similar-ish experience. I also have the like the blessing and the curse that the main like teacher in the youth group was my father. Your father taught youth group. Yes. Okay. So he was an elder in the church. Um, and there was a certain time when our church was between youth pastors. So mm -hmm. my dad fill, filled in that space. And so it's always awkward when you talk about sex in youth group 
It's even more awkward when it's your dad, the one talking about sex and youth. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. As one who has had my own son in my sexuality class yeah. at, at, at the university where I teach it, it is quite a deal. It's quite a deal. And then you even teach with your, your mom sitting in. <laughs> she has absolutely come to my class where, again, at university where I teach, she'll yep. show up. And then she was there for those four weeks, too. So yep. it was actually kind of fun to, to have some of the stigmas broken down just yeah. in, in so doing. So. And, and so I'll say from that experience, my dad shared and tried to be as gracious, but like say the truth of what he saw and kind of give the morals of it. So his, the way he compartmentalized was as the church teach the morals of sexuality, Mm -hmm. have the school, the education system teach the mechanics. Oh, interesting. And then his suggestion, um, and there's a lot underneath this as well. He would say, if you can't be moral, at least be smart. And Oh, that's super interesting. Okay. Ha- having safe sex. Um, that was that message of the 1990s for sure. Message of the 1990s. Message also my older sister when she was a junior in high school got pregnant. Oh boy. Yep. And so yep. just a lot underneath that. Yeah, there is a lot. And I fight... So I am finding it's that it's more common these days for even Christian parents to counsel their kids, as you said, to have safe sex if you're going to have sex, yep. number one. And number two, that maybe you should even live together before you get married to make sure that you're compatible in this area. I will say this. My instincts resist all of that, mm-hmm. that idea. So how do you navigate that conversation? Because I, I, I mean, I... I have very extensive talks about the importance of the vows and why yes. marriage is the context and really the mm-hmm. only context for us to have such this kind of sexual expression yep. uh, on that. So how do we navigate that into in the world today? I mean, this is where I think the church has enjoyed being in culture so long, it's forgotten how to be countercultural. Yeah. Say Okay, and say more about that. I think that's really astute what you're suggesting. Because just the whole conversation around sexual ethics, the early church were weirdos. They were. Um, around how they, we could use the word repressed they were sexually in the sense of no sex before marriage and also making it so husbands could only have sex with their wives mm-hmm. would have been unheard of in the Roman and Greek yeah. culture at the time. So they were repressed and the church like became a safe haven for so, um, particularly women and the vulnerable because it, lived out that countercultural ethic. But throughout 2000 years, and especially the last 1500 years of Christendom, the church has enjoyed the power of the culture behind it. Mm. And now if we want to, and now culture has shifted to having a different sexual ethic and the church is not prepared to be countercultural anymore. And and to Anna's point that she said earlier is there's, there's not great, rationale that people understand about why you would want the sanctity of marriage mm-hmm. as the context for, for sexual relationship. It's mostly just told it's bad, 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 wrong, 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 don't, don't, don't. And without any compelling reasons to understand that actually the boundaries of marriage bring are, for, the kind are of good. Free, yeah, yeah. That they bring the kind of freedom and joy that our heart yeah. is longing for as mm-hmm. we're messing around with this subject in a lot of different ways in life. Mm-hmm. But there just isn't compelling, robust teaching as to why that might be. And I will say, even for me, until I was forced to teach this class, it's not like I knew anything about sexual ethics when I was asked to start teaching all of this in 2007. And students had asked me questions. And most of the first eight years, and even today, like because things change so fast, I get questions all the time. And I'm like, I don't have any idea. I have to go study history and mm-hmm. scripture and the human experience. And like, I have to study more for this subject than any other subject I've had to study because there is so much information we haven't been cult- countercultural for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hold to a, a sexual ethic, not because I'm repressive, but because that's where I think the freedom and healing actually happens. But there has to be good reasons for it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's, so you um, asked me what those good reasons are? Yeah, well, I mean, we can definitely, certainly that I, I, one thing that I would like to do at some point as Deeper Magic continues to mm-hmm. grow is, is certainly want to take some of that content and put it into an accessible sort yeah. of package for people mm-hmm. to at least begin to, to hear some things like the kind of stuff we covered in those four weeks together. But I'm curious, you did write down a lot during, uh, I tried to take good notes. You took some notes and I know you had some questions from people as well. I Mm -hmm. I watched you sometimes visibly react to things that I said, which was always really fun to see that too. So I'm just curious in our last 20 ish or so minutes together on this podcast, maybe a couple things 
if we just reverse the chair here, I'm almost yep. always in the interviewer chair, not the interviewee chair. So yeah. I don't know how comfortable I am with this, but <laughs> but I'm going to turn the interviewer mic over to yeah, you. Yeah, I appreciate see how I can do as a guest on the show instead. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's all yours. So I, I the first question, um, knowing your background of teaching the best and brightest, as you've called them, of the evangelical world has to offer. Indeed. Um, jumping into a context where you weren't talking to them, but talking to the demographic, which is their parents. Mm. And how different is it speaking to, let's just say, people in the church that are so, they're paralyzed about this issue because they're so like entrenched in their certain viewpoint versus the younger students that are exploring, questioning, and trying to figure out the answers for themselves. Like what's the difference in those groups that you were teaching? So that's a good question. Two things come to mind. One is just a real practical one. And I've already sort of referenced this, but when you take the 2,800 minutes that I have to teach in a semester of classes on this and you break it up over the context of, let's say sermons as the typical place that we talk about kingdom life in the church, we're talking about, I have about three and a half years worth of sermons content. I mean, 2,800 minutes translates to that. So we cover so much ground in mm-hmm. one semester that you just simply can't cover in the church. So I just had a, had a functional issue, yep. meaning that what do I possibly say in such a short period of time? And, and we've already kind of talked about that. But I think the difference that I would experience is I think that some of the younger people come in with instincts and intuitions about things that are true, mm-hmm. that there, there must be a truth out there that would be helpful yep. for them to walk in wholeness. But I think there's also along with that much more of a relativity that mm-hmm. would say that, Hey, I have so many friends and so many different ways of understanding. It goes back to what Anna said a little bit. There's so much information out there, but it's not just information. There's so many friendships that they're having mm-hmm. of people living non-traditional ways of sexuality. And so I think it's almost like what happened with friends in the 1990s where there was this initial sort of shocking Mm -hmm. reaction to the kinds of conversation they were having in these coffee shops and in their apartments. Mm -hmm. And then it just became kind of normal. And, and I think my generation and the people who are part of our group at learning Mm -hmm. circles in this group, I don't think they, I think the difference is, is it's not as normal as part of their daily life as Mm -hmm. it is for the younger people with the friends with whom they're hanging. And so the questions are really different for younger mm-hmm. people than it was in the community that you and I were in, which understandably there's probably a lot of nieces and nephews and grandkids and people that have been uh, impacted. Yeah. And there's then a lot of questions about, so I know that this is the truth about sexuality. Mm-hmm. How do I handle this with my grandkids? Whereas the younger evangelical kids are like, I'm pretty sure there's a truth about sexuality, but I don't entirely know. And most of my friends are in a, different versions of it. So I, yeah. I would say that's the biggest difference. Yeah, and I, I think what you're saying makes me think of like, how do you feel about the the question? And it came up quite a bit of people asking you as the sex expert, what should I do about X? Yeah. Whether it's um, my neighbor who's in a same sex relationship is about to get married, should I attend? Yep. Um, my 14 year old daughter came out as transsexual. Like, what should I do? Yeah. How do you, how do you respond to those Mm -hmm. questions? (laughs) Yeah. And you probably experienced it's not, I don't have a frustration with it. I have just maybe a different angle from that because the basic approach that I would suggest is that these are uh, very complicated issues and we're under equipped for the most part. We don't have a lot of tool tools in our toolbox about how to handle any given sexual conversation. And so I think, there does need to be about a year of teaching mm-hmm. where we can go through all the just, just different nuances and dimensions of sexuality so that we have more than just a hammer to work with in any given situation. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I think from there as our, as the tools in our toolbox increase, and I think this is just discipleship in general, it's yes. not just about sexuality. Discipleship isn't about trying to prove to God that you're happy that you got saved and blah, blah, blah. It just simply is being equipped with more tools to work out life in this mm-hmm. cosmic battle of light and darkness in the world. Yeah. Right. So in light of that, we need way more tools in our toolbox to understand mm-hmm. sexuality. We need to understand that you know, the movement out of pornography is way more than just praying really hard about it on our Friday night, you yep. know? And so, and that takes Or just our, having internet blockers. Oh, exactly. You know? Or and, bouncing your eyes. Right. Or, and that's where actual freedom comes in and, and what it means to have desire shift so that you no longer desire porn. Like there's just so much in all of that, but that takes hours of tools in the toolbox. But 
the point of that is once you have the tools in the toolbox, mm -hmm. I think it's really helpful for Christians to stop living a life based upon cut and dry principle yep. and start living a life of discernment, meaning that truth in our Christian journey comes from the overarching like kingdom life mm -hmm. and then the invitation of the spirit about how to be in any given moment. And yes. people need to be able to hear. So if I have five different circumstances that look roughly similar in front of me, grandkid or this or that or whatever, mm -hmm. all of those circumstances are going to require something different. And I hope that I have a hundred tools in my toolbox that then the spirit would be, you need to go this way in this conversation versus this way. So I, yeah. it, was, it was a troubling question I brought up. I could tell the room was troubled by the question that I brought up when yes. I said, I might get invited to, to, to 10 same gender weddings and I would go to five of them and not go to five of them. And all 10 times I could be right. How could that be? How could that be? And they were so puzzled because they're like, well, isn't there a principle that either you go or don't go? Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, you sort of have to ask the spirit about whether you should be attending, not necessarily to affirm or not. It just like yep. you, you don't know what your presence or absence is going to mean. You have to walk it down in discernment. So I can't tell people what to do in every situation. It's like the guiding principle is to be guided by the spirit. Thank you. That's exactly. And so just that it, within the thinness of our discipleship that we've been living for the last 30 or 40 years as the church, when we've been trying to create these huge organizational business complexes and everything, discipleship really has suffered and discipleship isn't anything other than what is life like in Jesus's kingdom? Um, where does freedom, wholeness and joy all truly come from? What are the tools associated with all of that? And then how do I play that out in the world through the guidance of the spirit and the empowerment of the spirit? And so that's how I would handle those conversations is I don't know what to do with your seven year old or two year old or 14 or 40 year old. There are principles of kingdom life, but how they need to get applied in any given situation for sure needs the discernment of the spirit because you can really wreak some havoc if you're not mindful of the actual circumstance. Yeah. And who knows the havoc that will reach throughout the generations because I think that's what we've seen in the church with a hammer of sexuality of this is what it has to look like. Yeah. Um, and then how a culture that adopts that is eventually going to secularize, secularize yes. out of it. Yes. Yep. And then we're left not knowing what to do with our hammer. That's that. I think that's exactly right, Luke. And, and so as somebody who like, for example, when the, when the Obergefell amendment was passed in our country mm -hmm. that legalized gay marriage, of course, a ton of questions started coming up in class yep. and I had to be honest with myself where I said, okay, this is what I believe about same gender marriage. I don't think it's consistent with the kingdom, but the only reason why I say that is because I had one hammer with which I was <laughs> yeah. growing up. I was just told it was wrong. It was wrong. And I had to sort of set that hammer aside. Yep. I took off my truth colored glasses that mm -hmm. I thought I believed. And I wanted to study the issue on its own merits. And by the time I picked up what I think is true about it, and I can understand I am both sympathize with why people want to get married yeah. in a same gender relationship, but I think I can better articulate why it would be inconsistent with the kingdom, mm -hmm. but that we need to be on this journey together towards sexual wholeness and what that looks like. Yeah. I just, I ended up dropping all of my stones of condemnation while still holding on to the truth, to, to what I, what I once held on to, but I can now do so with 50 tools as opposed to just one. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I mean, people ask me about this all the time, not to get too far afield with this, but it came up in my class this week. I said, you know, I don't think the church collective is in a time where it has much to say about anybody's sexuality in our culture because the church collective, not every church, not every person, I'm just yep. talking about the church at large, has basically sacrificed its moral credibility about any conversations on sexuality because either it only had a hammer or so many people who are visible leaders of yep. Christianity um, have just proven to be you know, sexual disasters in so many mm -hmm. ways too. And so if I'm somebody who is simply looking for some companionship and friendship in a gay relationship, mm -hmm. I'm quite likely to not pay much attention to what the church might say if it was say that, oh, that's so wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, I would turn back and say, so how's the pornography in your congregation? How's the adultery in your conversation? How's the multiple sexual relations? Like how, yeah. and, and so the church, the church is in a season, generally speaking, I would say where it needs to get its own house in order yes. before it can really 
redemptively and carefully think through these other issues. Yeah. And I think that might have been the case through the past 2000 years. I think of, <laughs> it's probably fair. <laughs> think of Paul when he is talking to the Corinthian church and that's a really messed up church in a lot of ways. And he like gets on them for judging outsiders. Mm. He's like, we're only supposed to judge our, the in group. Sure. So like, don't worry about the outsiders. God will handle them the way God does, which I believe is very graciously and compassionately. I think so too. Um, but get your own house in order, I think is a paraphrase of what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. And I think is close to what he would say to the American church today. I think it for sure. I think that's, that's spot on Luke. And, and with that, then again, is just that, and I tried to encourage people mm-hmm. to be able to just always remember again, we've already said it, but that, that our battle is always for and with one another, that, that we just can't set up these false barriers mm-hmm. of, um, or unnecessary barriers, mm-hmm. even while you hold on to the truth of what is the beautiful kingdom life. Yes. Uh, and truth is not a hammer. It's just simply an invitation into what our heart really longs for. Even even though we need to hold to those things, we need to all be together in the yes. journey of it. And this is all way trickier than what we can cover in, oh, in the shortness totally. of this podcast. But this, again, goes to I would love to have extended conversations mm-hmm. about how to walk this out. What other questions came up from those couple of weeks? Yeah, let me just take a quick look at my notes. And th- this is a question kind of piggyback off of what we just said is how do we actually address those in the community who are sinning in a proper way? Because I think that's mm. like they're sinning properly or we address like them. Pro- we address them <laughs> properly. You are really properly sinning. <laughs> okay. No, you're saying, how do we address it? Like in within the community. Way? Yes. And I mean, and I think this is both for primarily church leaders who church has become getting this, um, the stake in the ground of these are our people. And if we mess up what they're looking for in church, they're going to go somewhere else. Yes, like, how do you actually speak the truth of, no, you are, are sinning like, and then sexually it's like, you're sinning against yourself and you're sinning against the whole body. Like, how do we do that in a way that people aren't just like, I'm, I'm plugging out of this community and going to a different yeah. community yeah. that will accept what I'm, I'm doing. Wow. That's a, because you're the expert. <laughs> and these are all unprepped questions. Like I have, I literally, yeah. you haven't, you haven't uh, thrown in my way yet, but I think that's a really in light of the church shopping mm-hmm. culture where we can just vote with our feet immediately and, mm-hmm. and, and churches fracture and so quickly on these topics, I think because there's a general atmosphere of hiding in our sin because we have such an incorrect, I, I think an unbiblical view of God mm. that God is this big tyrant in the sky that needs to be appeased all the time. And because we so often have started our faith, even with that notion that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was the appeasement of God, mm-hmm. which in in my mind is sort of just rubbish on every level. That's another topic for another time uh, about what Jesus actually did there. But uh, because most of us have started with a faith where we're hoping that God got appeased enough that would keep us out of hell, mm-hmm. then we're pretty scared to even talk about our sin in any way. And sin becomes a super sensitive topic yeah. that we're in a lot of bondage about, as opposed to if I think if you can foster the kind of community, and I have been in this kind of church community where it was electric and the church grew from about 400 to 6,000 almost overnight. It's a church both you and I know of and, and have participated in. And, and it didn't grow overnight because of their marketing techniques and all the baloney that goes with all of it. It grew overnight because there was this catalytic kingdom message mm-hmm. of God's amazing grace that meets us in the midst of our fractures and brokenness. And I think, how do we handle in the church? I, I mean, again, it's part of what I learned in my class is that if I don't start by deconstructing these ridiculous pictures of God that keep everybody away from the very physician that can heal them. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. And when I think about if I was sick with a disease and somebody said they could drive me to Mayo Clinic in Southern Minnesota and there'd be a physician that could heal me, I would be the first person in the car to drive down to Mayo Clinic to Mm -hmm. the physician. Well, we're never the first person in the car when it comes to taking our disease to God. Right. And it's because of the way God has been framed. And so I think, how do we deal with sin? Well, it, it, all manner of sin needs to be dealt with in the church. But I think if you're not in a situation where it feels like God is actually the physician to help bring healing and all of that, then I think it's almost impossible to bring up. But I think if you do have that picture simultaneously, like never stop bringing it up. Don't let the sin and the yeast like persist, but then it can feel like this wonderful invitation to people Mm -hmm. to say, I actually have hope because I don't know many people that are like, I feel so awesome about my sin. 
Like I love lying to people habitually. Oh. I, I love cheating. I love stealing. I love the, the pornographic addiction mm-hmm. that I'm in. Like all of that. People aren't just saying, I love this stuff. They're trapped. They are. But if the church is coming with a certain message of, you know, you better change you better because, change. you know, and throw 12 yep. virgins in the volcano to appease God yet again today. Like, you know, if that's the message, you're never yeah. going to come out with it as opposed to saying, while we were, yet, you know, as yet love sinners. was demonstrated yep. while we were yet sinners. It's like right in the, the midst of it. Maybe one last piece of that yep. rambling is... Mm-hmm. um. We had a conversation even in classes last week too, where it's so common to say that sin separates us from God and God is sort of like this talk to the hand figure as soon as we sin. And I was like, let's just go through this for a second biblically and you know, work through the logic of it. Uh, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, meaning that if you, if you put your eyes on Jesus real closely and carefully, you get a pretty good sense of who the father is. So who did Jesus hang out with? And I mean, he clearly was hanging out with sinners. So it didn't separate sinners from relationship with him. What it did, and, and this is what was so helpful, I think, for the students, is I said, sin separates us from the life of the kingdom for which we're meant mm-hmm. and the beauty and the wonder and the joy and the freedom and the possibility. It doesn't separate us from God in the sense that God is like talk to the hand. Mm-hmm. God comes to us in, in yeah. existing relationship in the midst of our sin to bring us freedom and wholeness. And so just even that notion mm-hmm. is so troubling to me that most people are like, I have sinned, therefore I'm separated from God. Therefore I have to do something to reconnect the relationship. And I'm like, Zacchaeus was in the middle of swindling people. And Jesus is like, Hey, come and have dinner with me, yeah. you know, get out of that yeah. tree and get down here. Get down and so here. I just think it's so important to even stop the language of sin separates us from God. No, sin separates us from the life of the kingdom for which mm-hmm. we're meant. And ultimately we can't participate in that kingdom. So in that sense, we're not working within sort of God's way of life, but God is still coming after us yeah. in the middle of the sin. And so I just don't, I think that I mean, that's the good so news unhelpful. of the gospel. Right. That, right. And I mean, as we talk about the, we're in the Christmas season right now that God became man yeah. so that he could take the consequences of the sin upon himself so that he might give us his righteousness. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it seems basic. <laughs> Except, you know, for for so many reasons, it just isn't. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it's the idea of once you get saved, you should have everything figured out right away just like that. And that's just not the case for so many of us. And I think if the message is once you, if the the goal, I think one of the problems with evangelical culture is get your ticket into heaven. Yeah. It's just silly. Yeah. And you know you got your ticket into heaven when you start doing all the right things. <laughs> You're always sort of hoping to prove out your salvation enough within, yeah. within that version of it that you don't lose it. And all, and we've talked about some of that on, on Deeper Magic yeah. in the past, but I think you and I have had conversations outside of this context about yeah. the need of, of a theological reformation, just like yes. who is God? What is the gospel? Can we get mm-hmm. away from sort of this decision-making altar call theology that yeah. you punch your ticket? And what, what does it look like to actually sign up to be a follower of the way? And how does that look? It's a much more sustainable and um, eye-twinkling journey, I would say, because I think, you know, the further that you you walk out this journey, the less encumbered your heart becomes, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's really painful to work yeah. through it all. There's just a whole different journey of Christianity that people, I think, they can sign up for that in that understanding, even walking through sexual sin doesn't have to be as scary as what we make it be. So, yeah. all right, we have enough time for maybe one more question from that. Oh, yeah. Do you have one more from that? I, I have a... A question that I came up with, and this is because this is a question that I've heard from friends that have graduated from the same Bible college I went to. Yep. And I think it's fair, might not be rampant, but I think it's common to bring up. And so this is my question to stump the doctor. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you've already stumped me. I right. feel like I've been rambling all the way through them. Yep. I, so this is what they were saying. I have a friend who compares same-sex marriage to divorce. And in the sense that Moses there is provision in the text oh. for people to to get divorced. And could we see the concession of divorce due to the hardness of heart applied to allowing same-sex marriage? Wow. Okay. So, and yeah, 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 yeah. No, this, this might is, not be fair. No, no, no. It's super, I think it's a really helpful question because yeah. one of the things that I've experienced over the last, I guess this must be almost nine years, eight years. I don't remember when the Obergefell Amendment was, but one is sort of the, the the first move that began to happen within some evangelical culture was that people were taking a fresh look at the biblical text to see if there was a different way of understanding mm-hmm. some of the more well-known texts about homosexuality mm-hmm. that would allow for same-gender monogamous marriages as yep. part of kingdom life. Yep. 
And where I'm sympathetic towards asking those questions is I think we've had a misunderstanding of John 3.16. I think we've had a misunderstanding of women in ministry. I think the Bible clearly allows for women in ministry, but it's been taught in ways that I think are inconsistent with the intention of the Bible. So there's so many examples of ways in which the Bible is commonly understood Mm -hmm. in certain contexts that it just, upon examination, you're like, well, wait a second, I think I'm missing something here. Mm -hmm. So one of the first moves of the church was to look at those through fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And not it was a few years after this, the Obergefell Amendment had hit that I had to debate somebody at sort of ground level mm-hmm. of one of the major denominations in the Midwestern United States. And it was a church that was wanting to wrestle through views of scripture. And it became really clear for this person in the middle of our back and forth. And he was a friend of mm-hmm. mine, but he was arguing for the side that you can look at these scriptures in a way that would not prevent same gender monogamous marriage from yep. being part of the kingdom. Yep. But, and actually I had to do the same sort of study and I found out so many interesting things that I didn't know that were so helpful. And I could even understand why maybe people were starting to make that move. Yep. But at the end of the day, it didn't hold up to mm-hmm. examination. And so I think that, I think the evangelical church mostly rejected the approach yep. that there is a way of reading the Bible mm-hmm. that allows for same gender monogamous marriage. Mm-hmm. The move now in light of what you're asking, yep. and this is becoming more common, which is well, the ideal is mm-hmm. male and female marriage, yep. but we live in a fallen world. And so we have to do the best we can within the fallen world yep. to make concessions. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, I think, I think that's a fairly tough perspective to maintain yeah. because then we have to start asking the question, so what other things should we make concessions about? Should we make concessions about lying? Should we make about cheating? You know, yep. like how, what criteria do we use to make concessions? Mm-hmm. And so I, I sympathize with that whole story of Moses and hardness of heart mm-hmm. where there was this temporary restriction, but that was not meant to be a sustainable way of life moving forward. That was just to protect the women temporarily mm-hmm. from getting traded around like property, yep. having no home, or no discarded. place to go. Yeah. And Jesus clearly was like, this is not the case yep. like long-term. So I think it's hard to suggest a criteria. I mean, mm-hmm. you would have to make the claim that God spoke to somebody like God spoke to Moses yep. and said, make a concession yes. right now related because of the to hard gender. Really, yeah. yeah. I just, I don't think that's a sustainable claim to use mm-hmm. either that example as what, as a, as a foundation for moving forward, but also this idea of, well, we live in a fallen world. It's the best we can do. I don't know. I mean, on the flip and, side, and that is that's where you hope the church can do better. Well, I, for sure we can do better. And, and I think though, on the flip side of it, I'll bring up this, this situation in my classes from time to time. That's like, if the neighbors on my left were a husband and a wife and they were living just a brutally horrible relationship together, yelling at each other, physical abuse, fighting, terrible little kids, all of that kind of stuff. And the neighbors on my right were a gay couple who were cooking together and traveling together, walking their dog together, watching Netflix together, and just seeming to have a quiet life of companionship. Why am I, why is my instinct to be so resistant to the gay couple versus kind of accommodating to the abusive heterosexual couple? And I think like in all of those conversations, Mm -hmm. we have to have those conversations and figure out why are we double standarding and why have all that without collapsing into a concession and embrace at the same time. And, And then I think also the element, and this is being 30 years kind of into this of the difference now between like my mother grew up in a very fundamental Baptist type of environment and she mm-hmm. got a, a divorce from her first marriage and her pastor at that church told her dad, my grandfather to tell my mom that she should no longer come to the church. Wow. Yeah. And, and so I, where my heart always stirs with this is the, the grace that I would hope instead my mom would have been offered Yeah, is still the grace that I want to be offered to those who are living in a homosexual relationship, even if they're married, like, wanting to see change, but like, I don't want to condemn them. Mm-hmm. Like, because that will just push them further away and continue to paint that picture of God who is that condemning voice that we need to appease rather than the loving father who tries to embrace us with open arms. I love how you said that. Cause I think anything other than that posture is being dishonest about our own sexual fractures and pain. Yeah. And it, and it creates these artificial separations um, from each other mm-hmm. where we should be, you know, hopefully walking this stuff out together in, in every possible way and being for one another in that. So I mean, maybe we just wrap up this time. There, there's so much more that I'm hoping that in the months and years ahead, yeah. we'll be able to continue to unpack together. But I think just a, just a reminder that this is, this is a topic that hasn't been talked about for so long. And, and I love what you're saying about the hardness of the conversation with your mother and divorce and all of that. Because I, I mean, I grew up in the seventies pretty young 
But I remember when divorce started happening in the church and people felt like they had a scarlet letter D branded to their forehead. If even entertained divorce, it was so awful. And the pain that was caused in all of that is akin to the pain that's being caused today. And can we just have one big collective reckoning Mm -hmm. that says we've really made a mess of things over 60 years. Let's at least start haphazardly walking through the conversation, becoming hopefully informed in reliable ways. But then I think the big thing is, is how do we begin to repent together lament together, but also with an eye towards hopefulness that we really can be restored because God really is for us in all of this. If you told me that the collective church could become the kind of place that Russell Moore, who's a theologian in our country, talks about, he says, you know, all of the promises of sexuality that are from the places like friends and our cultures, you so rightly identified, they they break at the end of the day. They're false promises. Yeah. And yeah people need a a home in which to come in order to experience wholeness and healing in the brokenness of their sexuality, whatever version they find themselves in. But it it does start with, I think the church looking inward Mm -hmm. about how can we walk that out? And and I think that's what we both hope for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us on Deeper Magic. And there's a lot lot more. So I mean, again, it's been three years and I think I have Luke VM. 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 See, I still can't say it. I've said it a thousand times. The wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) That's mean, Dad. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, More journey ahead. And thanks, everybody, for listening. For Anna, who is only Mm -hmm. here for a short period of time. For Luke, this is Peter, and we'll catch you again next time. Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. 